Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. There's a guy who used to be kind of like a real estate mogul in, in New York. Wrote a book called The Art of the Deal. He tweeted once uh, some years ago, the reason great deal makers do not openly celebrate a deal, especially one that is not complete, is that it shows weakness to the other side. Now, maybe advice that the current president of the United States might want to take. As he tweeted today, there is no longer a nuclear threat from North Korea. Meeting with Kim Jong-un was an interesting and very positive experience. North Korea has great potential for the future. I get that there are going to be circumstances where we need to talk to our enemies, that the goal of peace might require some negotiations. But the victory lap seems a little premature here. And, and I think we should be bothered by the fact that, that we are now whitewashing, you know, the record of this brutal Stalinist regime. And to suggest that Kim Jong-un loves his people, I, I don't think is helpful. So what did this summit this week accomplish? And at the same time, though, what, what American objectives and Western objectives did it also undermine? What kind of messages are we sending here by giving Kim Jong-un this platform, this praise, this legitimacy? Well, someone who's got a lot to say uh, on all of this. I'm very pleased to welcome to the program uh, Noah Rothman, associate editor of Commentary Magazine, also author of the forthcoming book, Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. Noah, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, just your thoughts on, I suppose it's kind of a common theme here that, that obviously the president wants to, to play up the success of this summit, but the idea that there is no longer a nuclear threat from North Korea, what, why would he say that? I have no idea. It, it boggles the mind as to why he would even consider tweeting something like that, um, or why he would even consider tweeting at all, for that matter. But uh, this one is particularly bizarre. It suggests that he has bought in, he's bought into his own hype a little bit, and it is entirely unfounded. You know, you said in the introduction that there are opportunities and occasions in the life of a nation in which it must interact with unsavory individuals and savory characters, regimes that do not reflect its values in order to maintain security. Nobody's arguing against that. Um, what others and myself have argued is that a presidential-level summit with an individual, a rogue regime, and a, the head of that regime, like the Kim regime in North Korea, is a reward, um, one that they have been seeking for 25 years, um, and which the Trump administration handed them without reciprocity. Uh, and it's that's an incentive. That is a, a sweetener, a deal sweetener, and it is one that they have uh, not reciprocated with any accurate concessions, I think, that are commensurate with the uh, the sacrifice of, of legitimacy and the uh, the legitimization, rather, of this individual and the sacrifices on our part. And uh, it it does reflect the extent to which I think the administration views the power of Trump's personality as, as a commodity to be leveraged. Lower-level contacts are where this should have occurred, particularly because we've had three months to prepare for this summit, and the product of it, uh, is not worthy of the amount of time that was invested in that uh, in that process. And now we're going to go back to lower levels in order to maintain whatever momentum was accrued from this summit. And I have very little hope that we're going to see more movement at those lower levels than we saw at this very uh, prominent coming out party for Kim Jong-un. Why would you? Look at everything their their nuclear arsenal has provided them in terms of 
legitimacy and focus from the from the global environment. I, I really think that we've we've sacrificed a chip that we have held in reserve for so long, and we're never going to be able to use it again. And for what? I, I'm not sure. Right. I mean, if if look, if if North Korea can can be rid of nuclear weapons, if we can actually achieve that, I mean, that would be huge. Uh, certainly the, the regime has used it as an insurance policy to prop itself up, to intimidate its neighbors, uh, to threaten America and its allies. But also, as, as you say, it now gives them legitimacy that if you can get over that hump where you're not just the rogue state pursuing nuclear weapons, you're one that actually has them, this is the reward you get. And some people are concerned, or they'd say, you know, what is legitimacy? It's sort of this intangible concept. We haven't really sacrificed anything tangible, right? Well, legitimacy has some tangible effects in the sense that we have secured and helped prop up the domestic political position of Mr. Kim. Um, what we saw over this, the course of this summit was Kim taking selfies with, uh, with diplomatic officials and elected officials in Singapore, democratic officials, certainly not of his stature, but who treated him like a rock star. He was greeted with these crowds, these throngs that, that cheered, cheered his name. And back home in North Korea, the images of uh, Kim taking night, you know, moonlit strolls in this very developed, uh, prosperous, uh, Asian city with uh, full electricity at night, which is something North Koreans can only dream of. And North Korean media proudly displayed these pictures for their people. Now, maybe that weakens the Kim regime's hold on his populace, but I don't think so. I think that is a display of confidence on the part of the regime that they don't care if the outside world is visible to their um, to their people, that, who, by the way, have plenty of access to illicit outside media in the form of thumb drives that have South Korean television and Chinese television. Um, so it's not as though they have no contact with that. But the fact that they're broadcasting this now shows a, a significant amount of confidence in the Kim's position uh, in, in, after the purge of some uh, elements of the defense uh, establishment in North Korea who might have posed a threat to Kim's legitimacy prior to this meeting, I think that they, they're feeling pretty good about themselves. And that is the result of the president saying, A, you know, war games are provocative, echoing North Korean uh, uh, propaganda, and also saying, you know, on spur of the moment, apparently, we're going to suspend exercises with the Republic of Korea, South Korea. That came as a surprise to South Korea. Uh, they said that they needed some clarification as to what that meant, and that is a risk that North Korea will exploit. So these are all things that we sacrificed. What did we get in return for it? Nothing I can see. We got vague promises and assurances that there will at some point down the road be a commitment to denuclearization, but that's a weaker language than anything that we've seen before, both in 1994 and in 2005 after the six-party talks. A promise at the very last minute to dismantle one engine testing site for a ballistic missile program. No regimes, uh, verification regimes, no timetables to meet again. No disclosure of their existing nuclear program or their existing nuclear arsenal. Nothing very strong, certainly weaker than anything we've seen in past negotiations with North Korea. And only promises. And I thought we were supposed to get something bigger from this. as We were promised from this administration that this was going to be the moonshot of diplomacy with North Korea in order to avert the worst. From all I can see, we've wasted this opportunity and made confrontation more likely because this regime is now more secure in its arsenal than it was yesterday. Well, that's an important point. And I'm, I'm sure you've heard this in recent days that that somehow 
you, you either approve, you know, applaud and approve of this approach, or else you must support, you know, bombing the North Koreans. That it, it's only one of those two options. Yeah, and that's a straw man, obviously. Um, the desire on everyone's part is to avert the worst case scenario, and we all have different means in good faith of going about that. Um, some say that these kinds of engagements, even if we're not, if we're just talking to each other, are better than not talking to each other. And the other side of that coin is more where I come down, which is that the nuclear arsenal is not the only threat posed by North Korea. There has never been a time in history in which a nuclear state with a functioning nuclear deterrent has abandoned that nuclear deterrent in the absence of a dramatic change in the regime or a dramatic change in the regional security environment. South Africa, Ukraine, Belarus upon independence in 1991. There are very few other examples of that, and none of them applied in North Korea. We have no reason to believe it would ever surrender its nuclear arsenal. It is the centerpiece of Kim's propaganda. So the only thing that we can see that would change and affect the sort of denuclearization of North Korea that we want is regime change. Now, when people hear that word, they think Iraq. But there are plenty of regimes that have changed radically as a result of internal domestic turmoil. And that's something that I think we should be gearing our policy towards, is supporting the kind of measures that would squeeze this regime, which, by the way, the Trump administration did very effectively right up until recently by providing a lot of economic pressure on China, which resulted in, in, I think, some changes of behavior in the North Korean regime. A lot of that has led up with this promise of diplomacy. And as everybody knows, as we're used to know, we were all on the same page a few months ago, time is not on our side. Wait and see is not a valid approach. Time is what they want. Time is what they need to make sure that they have a viable deterrent with a long-range ballistic missile program and a viable reentry vehicle, and then they can put a gun to our heads, at which point there is no military option. And until and then when that happens, and it's going to happen soon, then we will be out of options. So we're coming closer now to the ultimate conflict, which everybody hopes to avoid. And I really feel like this diplomatic overture has put us behind the eight ball and made that conflict more likely. Yeah, you may be right. Now, you had a piece today for, for NBC News looking at how Trump, who has rightly called out the Obama administration and past governments for their foreign policy failings, that, that Trump seems to be emulating that. Uh, talk about that. Yes, uh, the Obama administration sort of approached human rights in a way that was atypical of most administrations post-1977, post the Carter administration, which made uh, human rights, a, to quote uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, an instrumentally, uh, the instrumental utility of making human rights a centerpiece of American foreign policy vis-a-vis the Soviet Union, because it, A, isolated the Soviet Union in the international arena, and B, catalyzed internal dissent. Uh, and those are the kind of things that are viable in a foreign policy with a rogue regime that you don't want to see around forever. Uh, the Obama administration sort of abandoned all that under the idea that the magic of globalization and integration into the, into the world and the institutions, the patchwork of institutions that make up the global environment, would force a regime to liberalize domestically, whether it wanted to or not. That has proven to be a fallacy. That was what guided its, its, the Obama administration's policy towards Burma and Myanmar and Congo and Cuba and just about everywhere else in the world. And what we've seen instead is more rigidity from these regimes, crackdowns on dissent. Uh, and the Obama administration looked the other way in service to this sort of ideological idea of foreign policy. But it wasn't really ideological. It was anti-ideological. It was realist to the point where it was so relativist that it was 
designed to look past petty concerns like domestic liberalization and assaults on human rights and what have you. It's not as though they didn't care about these things, the Obama administration. It's just they had a different idea of how to address them. The Trump administration has, in a sense, adopted that anti-ideological view of foreign policy, and we're seeing it now in North Korea. And there's quite a few Democratic critics who are out crying, saying, why are you bringing up human rights? This is a criminal regime. 200,000 people are in prison camps. This is the worst regime on earth. How can you just talk about nuclear weapons? Well, look to the predecessor. Look to the behavior that you abetted over the last eight years and the, fall- the fallacious logic that the, the predecessor regime or predecessor administration applied to those negotiations and the integration of uh, criminal regimes like the Cuban regime into the international environment. This was the ground was laid for this a long time ago. Right. And I, I mean, it speaks to, I mean, there's hypocrisy on both sides, right? I mean, the, some of those praising Trump would have ripped Hillary or, or Obama for doing this. And, and of course, there, there are many who praised Obama for, for doing a, a lot of this that, that are criticizing Trump now. Yeah. And I mean, at least there is a national security logic behind um, the opening of negotiations with North Korea, sort of existential if you want to call it that, at least an imminent serious threat to national security, both America and its allies. That didn't really exist when it comes to Cuba. There really wasn't very much of a logic or impetus for opening up relations with Cuba. It was just sort of this liberal dream that had persisted for the last 40 years, a desire to move past the Cold War. Um, But there really wasn't any policy logic there. It was just sort of a desire. And the effect of that was a crackdown on dissidents, and uh, the worsening of the human rights conditions in Cuba, even ahead of Barack Obama's visit, where he was uh, denied access to dissidents and didn't make much of a push to see those dissidents because it would have scuttled the triumphalist vision of him standing in front of the, the mural of Che Guevara. Well, Donald Trump is appealing to that same precedent. He wanted the triumphalist press conference, and he didn't want that marred by any sort of uh, you know, uh, ambiguity as far as the, the effect of his overtures to North Korea. Um, it's, it's ego-fueled, and it is counterproductive, and it's not the kind of foreign policy I think anybody really wants to see. But the demands of partisanship mean we have to polish this thing, make it shine as much as we possibly can. Um, some of us are playing that game better than others. Yeah, good point. Uh, well, people can find your piece uh, today. It's at uh, NBCnews.com and much more at uh, Commentary Magazine, uh, CommentaryMagazine.com. Noah, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Uh, Noah Rothman, Associate Editor of Commentary Magazine, author of Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. So reasons why he's skeptical about this and, and why he's dismayed that, that Trump is, after having criticized uh, the failings of his predecessor, uh, potentially making the same mistakes. And as he writes in his piece today, the same imperative led Obama to essentially look the other way when Iran crushed the 2009 Green Revolution, tried to subvert sanctions that Congress imposed on the Islamic Republic, all because he was so hell-bent on, on getting a deal. And how much can you really trust a regime like that? There's a different kind of impetus with North Korea because they got the weapons, right? Whereas uh, Iran was aspiring to acquire them. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.